Amen, amen. Hey, why don't you grab a copy of God's Word this morning. We're going to be in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. If you don't have, uh, download it on your phone, don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be a Bible near you somewhere in front. Feel free to take that home with you. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. If you're not familiar with where the book of Galatians can be found, there's a table of contents at the front of your Bible. And today as we move through, the large numbers are going to be chapters and the small numbers are verses. This morning we're in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Let's, uh, let's read the passage together. The Apostle Paul writes... It says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so you'll remember that as Paul is going through in Acts 13 and 14 records this, that Paul is going through this province of Galatia. And so he's in Antioch, he goes to Iconium, he makes his way over to Lystra and he ends up in Derbe that he's going through and he's, he's planting churches in this early missionary movement. And as he's going along and he's planting churches, I I think that it kind of creeps into our mind that clearly he's done something wrong to see them departing so quickly. But but, so I want us to start in Acts 14 and, and look just quickly at verses 21 through 23. Listen along. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So he makes his way through Derby, and what they're doing is preaching the gospel, and people are responding to the gospel, and then they are applying the gospel to every area of that person in those people's lives. And so they allow no aspect, no area of their lives to go untouched by the gospel. So somebody comes in and says, I'm a compulsive whatever, and they're like, well, the gospel addresses that. Somebody comes in and says, I have family issues, and they say, the gospel addresses that. They say, there's injustice in our city, and they say, the gospel addresses that. Verse 22 says, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And listen to this, this is key, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They didn't say it's going to be easy. They didn't say it would be carefree. They didn't say that nobody's going to trouble you. In fact, they started there at the beginning telling them to be a Christian is difficult. Because you live in a world separated unto the Lord and facing the pressure and the persecution of this world. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We get the sense in reading through Acts and in reading this early part of Galatians that these weren't men and women who said, I I think Jesus just may be the answer that I'm looking for. No, they said, I think Jesus is the Messiah. I put my hope and faith and trust in Jesus and in him alone. And so it's to this group of people, to this group of people with a solid faith, to this group of people dedicated to Jesus that Paul now writes and says, I am so astonished. If you were to come over to my house and you were to go upstairs, you would see along uh, 
there's kind of this left-hand wall. There is a piece of furniture that has 15 plastic tubs like this, right? And each one of these tubs has its own toy or toys to go in. And so there's, there's a tub, and it is the home of all the phone blocks. There is a tub, and it is the home of every Lincoln log. And then there are tubs where all of the byproducts of Legos have come to die. And they seem to grow. And then there's the Hot Wheels tub. And there's this tub and that tub. And when you walk up in that room barefoot and it's clean and everything is in its tub and everything is put up, you feel like you can walk in that room without doing gross bodily harm to yourself, right? Because if you're a grown-up and you've ever let all of your weight come down on any shape, size, or Lego, you begin to rethink sanctification real quick. (laughs) Oh, holy God! Now, our five-year-old is not big, but the things he's able to do in that room unsupervised are astonishing. So you'll be in that room, and it's all clean, and I'm up there kind of doing things, grabbing something off a printer, doing whatever it is, uh, it is that I need to do up there. And I go downstairs, and I say, can I go upstairs? That's fine. And then what I hear next sounds like somebody has unleashed Godzilla versus Mothra in that room, right? They're just kind of coming out one another, and you're crashing and banging and all these things, and sweat breaks out of my forehead because I know those tubs aren't happy anymore. (laughs) Somebody has emptied them of all of their happiness. And so I go upstairs, and I stand just kind of on the landing, and I look in that room, and the only thing that comes to me is I'm completely and utterly flummoxed. Because to use Paul's word doesn't account for it. And so I am flummoxed. I am perplexed and distressed. And he's over there playing with a toy that wasn't found in any one of the 15 tubs. (laughs) Y'all, it's probably one he brought from downstairs. What he wanted to see was, though, is there a complimentary toy in each one of these 15 that if I paired them along would make this toy full and complete, lacking nothing. And seemingly the answer is no. Right? So you've probably been a part of something like that where you've left something a certain way. You leave work on a Friday and the project is all taken care of. Things are going well. Contracts are coming in. Business is moving along. You come in on Monday and the whole thing is falling apart. And you're like, I am astonished. You're bewildered. There's no way that you can connect logically in your mind. How did you get from this place to this place? This is what Paul experiences. You see, when he left them in Iconium and Lystra and Antioch and in Derbe, they were pursuing the Lord passionately and following along in the way. And so we can see Paul wrapping up and he's heading out somewhere else and he's heading on down the road. And eventually this brother or sister catches up to him and they tap him on the shoulder and they go, you walk really fast. Paul, you're never going to guess what's happening. He says, well, come on, let's, let's go to first century Starbucks and let's sit down for a cappuccino because that's how I take bad news. A little bit of cinnamon on top, right? And so he's sitting down and he's sipping this sweet, delicious cup of cappuccino. And they're like, you're never going to guess what's happening. These guys, the Judaizers, have come to town and they are telling the Christians there that they have to apply the law to their lives. And Paul's like, keep going. He's like, they're telling them they have to apply the law to their lives. They're telling them they have to be circumcised. They're telling them if they don't do these things, they cannot be one with the Lord. 
They cannot be one with God. And Paul says, okay, how are they responding? Which is, Paul, that's the most devastating thing of all. They believed it. They believed it. And so we're beginning to see them, Paul, head in this direction towards strict Torah adherence. We're beginning to see them begin to move in this direction to not just apply the law for themselves, but begin to force the law as kind of a litmus test for belief in God. Paul calls for the check. He gets his secretary in, and he begins to write furiously, and he sends off this letter as quick as he can to the city. And he tells them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Do you hear his heart there? Paul isn't writing and blasting them and saying, you know better. What he's telling them is the gospel is better. Jesus is better in the midst of these things, but this is what you are doing. And notice even how he describes it. Paul doesn't describe it in terms of their opposition. Paul describes it in terms of their inward movement. Paul doesn't write to them and say they are leading you astray, but Paul says you are deserting. So what is he hoping to do in the midst of this? It's instructive for us that Paul hasn't said you have left Jesus, you have deserted Jesus. What does he say instead? You are deserting. So he's catching them in the midst of this. They are walking away. They are making their way. And they are deserting the gospel. But they have not fully abandoned Christ. And so what Paul hopes to do in the midst of this is to arrest their progress. Some of us today, what we need is an intervention. What we need is someone to stand in the middle of our lives, in the middle of the road of our desertion, and say, stop heading this direction. You think sin is so enticing, stop, it leads to ruin, it leads to death. That's what Paul is doing with his words. He stands in the middle, he interrupts their progress, and he calls them back to an experience of grace. Look what he wrote there. He says, I'm so astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. You're abandoning the Lord, you're acting treasonously towards God. Because you are abandoning him who called you into what? Into the grace of Christ. The amazing news and the accomplishment for a Christian is that you are saved by grace and you are held fast by grace as well. The grace that we were called in the midst of our, <coughs> in the midst of our waywardness is the same grace that God applies to our hearts even today to sustain us. Now listen. In the midst of our self-assuredness, in the midst of this sense that I'm doing really well, my family's going really well, and everything in life is heading this direction. In those moments, we feel like grace was really important in the beginning, but I am okay right now. But in all of these minutes, the minutes of being self-assured, and the minutes of being wayward, and the minutes of, being, of heading towards desertion, and the minutes towards saying I'm steadfast in these things, we are always totally dependent upon God's grace. And it is necessary for us to have an acute awareness to be so desperately sure that we need his grace desperately. That we needed it when we came into salvation and that we need it in the midst of salvation. And his grace is sufficient to carry us all the way through to glory. Amen? They needed Christ's grace. 
They needed it when they came to know him at first, and they need it in the midst of these things so that they might be able to be held fast. They needed his grace. But in the midst of these things, they heard the words of the Judaizers, they heard the word that was spoken around them, and what they began to think in their hearts were, there's something more we need to do. There's, just, there's, there's something additional that we need to add to this if we want to know God. And they begin to substitute that for the gospel of God. So this is why Paul says, you're deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ for, what does he say? Another gospel. For another gospel. And there's this long pause in the midst of the writing, which lets this idea germinate within their minds to say, yes, there is other good news for us. There is other good news that we have to believe. There's other good news that we have to apply. There's other good news that we have to communicate to those around us. But then Paul responds and he answers back to this pregnant pause. He says, not that there is another gospel. You see, they began to believe in their hearts and they began to believe in their minds that there was, in fact, another gospel. And it was better. Because in the midst of it, they found themselves cooperating with God for their salvation. And in fact, they are finishing the unfinished work of Christ in their law adherence. Paul says, you're deserting him, you're turning to a different gospel. And then he answers, he says, listen. Don't be deceived by these folks. Not that there is another gospel. There is no other good news. The good news as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 is this. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. Y'all, there is no other good news. There's no other word, there's no other philosophy, there's no other direction, there's no other wisdom whereby we might be saved. We are saved by grace, held fast by grace. Jesus Christ, the God-man, come in the flesh, died for our sins and raised on the third day. That and that alone is the good news. Glory. That and that alone is the good news. He says, but this is the problem. You see, there are some who have come in and they trouble you. And they want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is the real problem. That there are men and women who come in and they've said, listen, we come from a Jewish background. And, and, and this Christianity thing that you're doing is really cute. It's really novel. And I, I think you guys are really on to something. But you're totally missing the point of this. You see this Jesus, this Messiah who's come, he's certainly a part, he's certainly a key, but your gospel, the one that Paul taught you, it's missing. Let's just say a fair amount, but we're going to sort it all out for you. You need to be doing a variety of things. You need to be holding all of these things. You need to be not eating with these things. You need to be not hanging out with this group of people. You need to be circumcising every male because that is a sign of the covenant. And inasmuch as you don't do these things, you have no partnership with the Lord God. How does Paul describe that? 
He said, there are those that have come in and their job is to trouble you. Now, the wild thing is, if, if they were to come in and this church was to say, <clears throat> before they received Paul's letter, describe to us kind of how your church is comprised. They would say, we're all just kind of one people. We meet in various houses. We are all headed in the same direction. They would not have seen these folks as those who are primarily causing trouble and dissension in their lives. But Paul points out their whole purpose. He points out their whole focus. He says they are there to trouble you, and this is what they're doing. They are perverting the gospel of Christ. Because in essence, what they have done is they had said that grace is decent, but it's not enough. Grace is pretty good, and, and, and we're going to say it's a necessary ingredient of salvation, but it only works if you add the yeast to the law. Grace is, is pretty good, and it's going to make some profound changes in you. It's certainly going to make you more grateful. It's going to make you a better husband. It's going to make you a better wife. It's going to make you a better child. It's going to make you a better employee. But let's not get carried away. Because if you go applying grace to all these various things, it is going to destroy your work ethic. It's going to destroy your ability to apologize. It's going to destroy all of your relationships if you let this grace run its full course. But you want to temper that grace with strict law adherence. But really what they wanted them to rest in, to trust in, was their own sufficiency. Really what they wanted them to rest in, to trust in, to, to lean into was their ability to do right and to be right. Paul says they're here to trouble you, they're here to twist the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because we recognize that in the midst of these things, essentially what is happening to these people is that they are moving away from Jesus. You see, when they first received this troubling news, they'd reach out and they, and they held a hand with Jesus and they said, I am held fast and held secure by grace in Jesus Christ. But as they received more and more and believed more and more that it was on them to hold up their salvation, they began to see themselves moving further and further in this direction to the point where they were ready to release their grip on Jesus and firmly to place with both feet and both hands a firm understanding that this salvation is on Paul answers and he speaks to those who come in who trouble, those who come in and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he speaks of it and speaks to it in the most plain and straight and powerful language. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, but even if we, so even if me or Barnabas or any of the guys that you've heard of, even if we, or he trumps it again, he says, an angel from heaven. He said, let me just throw out this insane hypothetical. Let's say I show up and I'm crazy out of my head and then an angel from heaven shows up and goes, ah, and does all the power and all the glory and all the majesty and they should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you. He said, you remember the grace that we previously said to you that even when you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, Christ died for you, that he made you alive through that grace. Do you remember that gospel? Do you remember that only good news? Listen, if I show back up and I'm crazy out of my head, if an angel from heaven shows up and you're so blown away, but the message that you hear them preach does not accord with that previous gospel, let them be 
sounds hard. It doesn't sound particularly loving. It's necessary. Paul is not talking about church discipline. Paul's not saying, listen, those that are there, you need to hand them over to the Lord so that they might be restored. But Paul assumes in the midst of this is based upon this group's action that this group who is seeking to lead them astray, they are not Christians. And so he says, let them be accursed. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 26 talks about items handed over for destruction. It says, and you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become utterly devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Essentially what Paul says is those who are coming up and they're stirring up trouble and they're seeking to lead you away from Jesus, this is what you do with them. You say you are not welcome here, you are handed over to the wrath of God. And in honesty, that's where they begin anyway. And that's where they have remained this entire time. Because without the grace of Jesus, without his grace living in us, without his grace forgiving us and being operative for us and in our lives, we are recipients of God's divine wrath. As Paul says, everybody in the church needs to know. Everybody needs to recognize that this teaching leads to the wrath of God. And this one who's engaged in this teaching, and notice he includes himself in the engagement. Because if I show back up and I'm teaching to you anything other than the grace of Christ is sufficient and necessary, I'm to be handed over to receive the wrath of God. If an angel of the Lord shows up, and we recognize that the scripture tells us that the devil masquerades as a beacon of light, if he shows up and he begins to teach you something, you say, I really like the way this sounds, but it doesn't match this gospel of grace. Let him be accursed. So they know that that's what's been preached to them. That's what they heard Paul communicate. He says, if anybody shows up and they preach to you a different word than the one I preached to you, let him be accursed. But somewhere swirling around in their heart and in their mind is, have we stayed too long in this gospel of worship? Have we stayed too long under this path of desertion? Have we gone too far down the road towards walking away from Jesus to be able to handle it? So he comes at it again from a different direction. He says, if, as we've said before, so we say now, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have, everybody say, received. See, it's not just preached not just the one that they heard but it's the gospel that they believed and they took with them it's the gospel that stands for the ransom of their lives it is the transformational gospel of grace of Jesus Christ who has become their salvation so he says listen I'm not just asking you to compare it against those things you've heard I'm asking you to compare it against that which you have it is so incredibly important that we as the people of God compare the gospels that we hear in this world 
the purported good news that is spread in churches and in culture, that we compare it against not just those things that we have heard, that we compare it against his word, and we are assured that we have received his grace. And his grace makes all the difference. We find that his grace moves into these strongholds and these various gospels, and it destroys every stronghold. There are so many different gospels, uh, false and fake gospels that are being purported, that are being communicated both in the church and beyond. I want us to look at four briefly before we close. This idea of the, the gospel of injustice. That the gospel is primarily concerned with setting free and bringing an end to injustice. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. But somewhere along the line, we begin to substitute the idea that I have received grace. I am an ambassador and a communicator for men and women saying, You must come receive grace. And I've substituted that for doing acts of justice. So we see poverty and we run headlong into poverty. And we say, I want to see poverty come to an end. We say, we, we, we see pro-life causes and we run headlong into those. And we say, we want to see these things come to an end. We recognize that life begins at the point of conception and it goes all the way through natural death. We look at, at, at issues of inequality. We look at issues of, of, of racism. We look at any other of these issues. And when we substitute the gospel of grace for our cause for justice, we take Jesus out of the equation. The gospel only ever makes sense for a Christian to advocate if you align yourself with Jesus. Justice only ever makes sense for us in as much as we recognize that you and I should be receiving the wrath of God. But because Christ took upon himself God's justice, God's wrath, then we call men and women to experience this same feeling of grace. Y'all, in this world there's going to exist inequality. In this world, injustice is going to run rampant. Does this mean Christians kick back and say, we don't really care about any of these things? Absolutely. But our primary motivation is that we extend and live in the grace of Jesus Christ. Because this world is temporary and fleeting. And whenever we call men and women to live in the hope of justice, that's faulty, that's failing, that's temporary... We call them to live in the hope of a gospel that does not fail. The gospel of grace sets men and women free. The gospel of grace is far superior to the gospel of injustice. Within our community, within our society, within the Western world, we recognize the gospel of immediate blessing. I mean, you can hear it on just about every TV preacher. You can see it occupy your Facebook feed. If you Google, does God want me to be happy, you're going to get emails for the rest of your life. Because indeed he does. For $5.99 a month. You can just give me that money. No, really, like you can give me that money and I can buy a cappuccino like Paul. This gospel of immediate blessings essentially says God desires for you to be healthy. 
God desires for when you need something, when you want to buy something, that you have that money there readily and available for you, that God wants you to have the best parking spot, that God wants you to have the best waistline and wife and experience all over the course of this life. And it communicates to you that when you don't experience these things, when you are unhealthy, when you don't have money, when you aren't experiencing these blessings, that you are primarily not receiving them because of one of two reasons. One, there's sin in your life. Two, you don't have enough faith. Which is really a subset of one. And so you search your heart, you search your mind, and, and, and you're, God, search my heart, oh Lord. And, and you talk to friends, and you recognize that, that, that you really don't have any unconfessed sin. And so the only conclusion you come to is, I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough faith. God would give this to me if I had enough faith. So you live the rest of your life depressed and abandoned, feeling like you have been a failure to the Lord. But Jesus offers a correction. This gospel of immediate blessings, Jesus said to his early disciples in Mark 8, 34 through 36, he says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the world, the whole world, and forfeit his soul? The gospel of immediacy and immediate blessing says to us, this life and all its trappings are for you here and now. But the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace allows us to live in this world with open, empty hands, with empty pockets, empty bank accounts, with health, with a family that is fading away. And to be buttressed and supported by his grace and say, even though I am impoverished, even though I am in poor health, and even though I am fading away and 10 years after my death, no one will remember me. Still, he is sufficient and his grace abideth still. The idea of the gospel of independence, and this is one of the ideas that Paul will get to later in the book of Galatians. Essentially that God has saved you and his grace has brought you into this relationship. And he says, I'll see you at the end and you do whatever you want between here and there. And it leads you over and over and over and again to pursue sinful pleasures and to pursue whatever appetite is before you. And all the while thinking, why don't I feel closer to the Lord? You will not feel close to the Lord as long as you have unconfessed sin in your life. You not, will not feel close to the Lord if you don't allow his grace to be applied to all the nooks and crannies of your heart that seek to pursue selfish life. Jesus said to the disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we want people to feel good about themselves. And so we communicate to them that, listen, God is for you. He's all for you. He doesn't really care how things are going for you. He just wants to see your best efforts. No, he doesn't. He wants you to come to a recognition that your best efforts were never going to be good enough. But Jesus was. And Jesus is. And Jesus only ever will be. This gospel of independence leaves us broken and alone. Only the gospel of grace finds us dependent and needy. And to this creator God, us in our need and brokenness. We experience healing. We experience freedom. 
because he has not made us to be independent of him, but to be dependent on him. I'm talking about the gospel of hard work, and then we'll close. This gospel of hard work, this is something that I consistently have to work against. I was raised with an understanding that you work hard, that we enjoy work, and we give ourselves to it. But when we begin to allow this understanding of working hard in the workplace to come over and to take root and to begin to grow and to flourish in our lives with God, we think as the Judaizers were communicating to them, grace was pretty good. But i got to finish this on my own. That at the end of the line, that at the end of all these things, that I'm going to enter into glory because God is going to look at me and say, look at all the amazing things that you've done. Look at how great you've been. Look at how good you've been. Look at how you've led people to follow your example. Look at how freeing your activities have been. And look at how righteous you've been in the midst of all these pursuits. We run smack into Ephesians 2. I run smack into all my good parenting. I run smack into all my good husbanding. I run smack into all the ideas of being a good parent. And resting in the sufficiency of these good things. And Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of And this devastates the self-starters. And it devastates the hard workers. Because we only get there in so much as we testify to the Lord, my tendency is to work hard and to do it on my own. And I'm never getting there without you. I'm never making it without you. Paul says the reason that it's set up this way is because it's not a result of works that no one may boast. There's some of us that are deserting the one who has called us into the grace of Christ and we're doing it a myriad of different ways. Some of us feel ourselves moving away and deserting God because we feel far from the Lord. You feel this morning like you're a constant perennial disappointment to the Lord. That at the end of every year when God enters holy tax season and he's kind of has these tables out and he's going down through and he's like, oh, that's a lot of sin. I'm not going to be able to live up to that bill. God is disappointed with you. God is far from you. God really wants nothing to do with you. But it is this gospel of grace that reminds us that we were in the midst of deadness. Our hearts were not inclined to the Lord. We weren't blind men and women reaching out and feeling around and God said, they're headed in the right direction, let me help them. It is in the midst of your sin and deadness his grace finds you. And it's in the midst, right now, Christian, it's in the midst of your battle against sin and you feel like you're losing that his grace can and will pull you back.
do not grow weary. Confess your sins to the Lord. Allow him to apply his grace once again to your heart. To be restored to him, to be made whole. It is a gospel of grace. It is not a gospel of works. And to the degree to which we live in the sufficiency of his grace, we are made whole. We are made thankful. And we are held steadfast and not led astray, not led into paths of desertion. His grace is enough. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your grace. It is not a message for those of us at the beginning of our walk and faith in you. It is a message for all of us during all times in our relationship with you. So God, all across this room and across the hearing of this message, we find men and women who are struggling with different things. God, would you remind them of your grace, your unmerited favor, that they, that you are pleased with them because of the good things Jesus did for them. And you delight in seeing them restored to you once again as they allow you by the power of your spirit to apply your grace to their misdeeds, your grace to their sins, your grace to their wayward heart your grace to their difficulties. God, we pray for those within this hearing who have yet to submit themselves to your son, Jesus. Father, they don't believe in your word, they don't believe in your son, Jesus, but they also recognize that this world and all its trappings are constantly a radical disappointment to them. So God, would your spirit this morning call them to yourself, God, would you awaken them to their sinfulness, that they have sinned against a holy God, that they are in need of forgiveness. And you offer them that forgiveness through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, we want to experience your love. We want to live lives faithful to you. God, my prayer for us as a body of believers is that we would follow you out of a response of having received your grace. So God, would you lead us in that exercise? Would you lead us in that application? Father, we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.